You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your financial front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. And this is a podcast for all the nice girls, which is a bucket that I feel like I get thrown into all the time. In fact, my husband often tells me that he thinks that I should be more of a diva. And I totally disagree. And it's very hard to do. But there's a lot of information out there about this, that if women are nice or labeled as nice, they're seen as weak or ineffective. And if we choose to be a little more assertive, people don't necessarily like it. And It gets very, very complicated. But the truth is we really don't have to choose between strength and kindness or confidence and likability. We can be considerate of others and ourselves. And that is Fran Hauser's take. She has a new book out. You have probably heard of it because it is getting a whole lot of buzz. It's called The Myth of the Nice Girl, Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate. Fran, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, Jean, thank you for having me. I love that introduction, by the way. Thank you. You know, it's, it is really true. I mean, if you're raised by parents who raise you to be nice and you, you actually – I think nice is – Highly underrated. Can I just say that? I'm so with you. That's why I wrote the book. Um, I, I agree. I think everything you said about, you know, especially at work, if you bring nice into the workplace, that that often gets equated with weakness and you're not going to get the corner office and you're, you know, you're not going to get ahead. And I just don't buy that. You know, if, if I look at my own career, I've always been kind. I've always been compassionate and I brought empathy to work. And when you do that, when you bring those things into the workplace, you gain trust and you develop relationships. And at the end of the day, being successful in business is all about relationships. Well, tell us a little bit about you and your career. You, We saw each other and realized that we definitely met before. You spent a lot of time in publishing and a lot of time at Time, Inc., and now you're investing. So tell us about your arc. Yeah. So, you know, I, I like to say I've reinvented myself a, a few times, um, which has been really fun and energizing. And yes, I was in media for 15 years. I spent 10 of those years at Time, Inc. And I left four years ago um, to go all in on startup investing and advising. And really what caused that transition was, you know, I was at Time, Inc. I was running digital. I was meeting with a lot of startup founders. And I enjoyed meeting with them and listening to them talk about their business challenges. And I found that I was giving out all of this free advice Mm -hmm. to them. And so I thought, huh, you know, what if I actually had some skin in the game? What if I started investing in some of these founders? So I actually started investing as a side hustle while I was at Time, Inc. And it was something I really enjoyed. My kids were three and 18 months old at the time. Wow. And so I just felt like, you know, if I do this full time, if I work for myself, um, this could really be a great thing for my family because 
I can choose. I can choose which companies I want to get involved with, which projects I you know I want to get involved with. Um, so it's it's really been great. It's been it's been four years that I that I've been doing this. How did you turn the corner and decide to write a book, which we both know is a huge commitment? Yes, it is. And I've been thinking about this book for nine years, you know, going back to when I was at People magazine, launching people.com. And I had a lot of young women that I was mentoring who just kept asking me the same question, how can you be so nice and still be successful? And when I looked at books that were out there, all I found was nice girls don't get the corner office. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to write the opposite of that. Um, But then, of course, life, you know, gets in the way and the, the book project got shelved for a little bit. The real tipping point was two and a half years ago, I wrote a blog post for Forbes called Nice Girls Finish First When They Ask the Right Questions. And it was one of the most popular blog posts in this mentoring series. Um, There were about 50 posts, and I think it was like in the top three in terms of page views. And I started getting women reaching out from everywhere, um, just basically saying that that this is something that really struck a chord with them, this double bind of, if I'm too nice, I'm a pushover. If I'm too tough, I'm a bitch. And it was at that moment that I felt like the concept was really validated, Mm -hmm. you know, beyond my own personal network, but hearing from random women all around the country. So that was the moment when I knew that I had to write the book. The word nice is pretty loaded. I mean, not just from nice girls don't get the corner office, but I think about the election and how everybody loved Hillary Clinton when she was secretary of state. And then the moment that she started to advocate for herself, she fell in the polls. So why is nice controversial? Yeah, I thought about this a lot. And I, you know, I think about how as a parent, you know, when I tell my children to be nice, I really mean it. Like, I really want them to be nice. I want them to be kind. I don't want them to be bullies. And then something happens as we grow up where nice becomes this, like, weird throwaway word almost. Like, if you go on a date and it doesn't go well, what do you say? He was nice. nice. Or, you know, she was nice, right? And so it becomes this, like, word that you use when you don't have any other word (laughs) to use. It's kind of like fine. It's kind of like fine. And I think, you know, in, in the context of the workplace, I think over the last several decades, this stereotype has developed of what a successful leader looks like. And it's usually a man. You know, it's usually someone who's tough, who's competitive, who's demanding. And by the way, those aren't bad things. Like there's a place for all of those things in business. But nice and kindness, I think, has just really been undervalued as a trait. So what's your modern definition of nice? So my definition of nice is someone who is empathetic, who is collaborative, and who has confidence that there are enough opportunities to go around. So it's really someone who operates from a place of abundance and generosity. And I think like our generation of women, I'm seeing more and more of that It's a big change from the earlier generation of women because, and I've talked about this before, but I started my career at Working Woman Magazine, which was not an especially great place for women. It was a place, and I think it was just the time, but it was a place where every woman had paid her dues and fought so hard for the right to pay those dues that I felt like 
they, the women in senior management were determined that every young woman was going to pay her dues to. Mm-hmm. And there were also fewer positions at the top for women. Yeah. Right? So there was just a lot of competition yeah. versus collaboration. And it, it was this this mindset of like, if you win, it means that I lose, as opposed to now where I feel like it really is more about let's support each other. You know, we we can all win, really. Is there a point where nice is too nice? Yes. I think when you veer into that people-pleasing territory and, you know, you're kind of swiping things under the rug because you don't want to make waves or you're, you know, catering to other people's needs kind of at your own expense. You know, it's that, like, I always talk about the difference between being helpful and being subservient. Like, being helpful is great, especially when you're first starting your career. You want to be helpful. You want to have a positive attitude. But being subservient, you know, that puts you in a very weak position, and that is not helpful. So I think being really aware of your actions and your behaviors, and if you're veering into that people-pleasing territory, it's really time to kind of take a step back and say, like, why am I doing this? Well, how can you recognize if you're going there? Yeah. I think it's a lot of are you saying yes a lot when you probably should be saying no, Right. Because sometimes like we people please in a way that we don't want to say no. We're, we're afraid to say no to the person, whether it's your boss, whether it's a peer. There's also this fear of missing out, mm-hmm. by the way, like where all of these requests come to us. And it's like, but if I don't do that, am I going to be missing out on something? So I think really paying attention to am I consistently saying yes to everything that's being asked of me? Um, And is it getting in the way of my priorities, the things that I really should be working on? So I get, and and I have a problem with this, like a very (laughs) well-documented problem with saying no. And it's something that I try to work on, and sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't. But when I want to say no, I have the ability to say no because it's my business and you know, unless I'm answering to a client, which sometimes I am, and and then it becomes harder. But if my employees wanted to say no to me, I imagine that would be really, really hard for them. So what's the yeah. best way, as I shoot myself in the foot, for them to do that? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, so I think the best way to do it is to go back to what are if it was, okay, so it's me and I want to say no, right? It's yeah. my boss asking me to do something or it's like another senior person in the company asking me. I would go back to what are my priorities? Like what are the things that my boss and I have decided are the things that I really need to focus on to move the business forward, right? We together decided that these are the things that are important. And I would remind my boss of that because, you know, you want to really hit it out of the park on those things because you know that they're important to the business as a whole. And if you get distracted with other projects, like there's really um, a risk of you're not going to do a good job at anything. So I always bring it back to like the company, the company's goals, and how will the company be affected if I work on this other project that I really don't have the time to work on. Interesting. Yeah, I think when you frame it, no, because you're not exact. You're not saying no. I'm not doing this for you. You're saying we've discussed this, and I have these priorities, and we agreed that this was more important. And so, if it's okay with you, I'm going to keep focusing. That's right. 
That's right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Interesting. I want to get into ambition and likability. But before I do that, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. And our shared mission here is to get you talking about your money and your career and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Whether you are just entering the workforce or running a business or taking a break to raise a family or getting ready to retire, Fidelity has a lot of tools and resources that can help you understand where you are today and get where you want to go tomorrow. And you can discover more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are talking with Fran Hauser, author of The Myth of the Nice Girl, Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate. So your definition of ambition has three parts, taking credits, stepping up, and creating new opportunities. Can you explain them and tell us where do we need to focus? Yeah. So um, I think all of those things are important, and there are things that a lot of women struggle with. You know, this idea of, like, taking credit for for the work that you do. I have a story in the book about a woman, Rashma, who was in a meeting, and they were brainstorming product names for a new product, and she came up with a name that was chosen. Someone else ended up taking credit with their boss, and she came to me, and she was devastated, and she really didn't know how to handle it. And we came up with this approach that worked really well, um, which was basically she, in her next catch-up meeting with her boss, she told him a story about the actual brainstorming and the technique that they were using to brainstorm the name. And while she was telling the story, she said, and I'm so excited that everybody loved the name that I came up with. So it was a way of taking credit without just like barging into his office and saying, okay, I'm really pissed, you know, so-and-so took credit, but it was my idea. Like, if she had done that, that wouldn't have gone over so well. So we, and trust me, we talked about a lot of different options, but that was the one that she felt the most the most comfortable with, and it really worked. Because well, it wasn't happened? defensive. Oh, he said, so he said, oh, he said, you, you came up with a name? It's a, such a great name. Like, he didn't say anything about Jack had taken credit, but the point is, like, she made it known that it that it was her idea. And she took credit in a way that wasn't off-putting, right? It was just they were having a conversation. She brought it up in the middle of the conversation. Um, and she felt so much better after that. Well, because it was clear. Because it was clear. I mean, we know that women tend to camouflage our achievements, but we tend to use language that weakens our positions. How do we stop that? Yeah. How do we start... I guess stepping forward. Yes. Yeah. The the biggest thing for me was um, apologizing, saying mm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but. And I actually had a friend of mine at Time Inc. call me out on this. Like you apologize all the time, and I didn't realize I was doing it. So I actually went into my inbox and I typed the word sorry into the search field, and hundreds of emails came back. Wow. And when I went through and read those emails. What I realized was that I was apologizing for such trivial things. Like, it took me more than four hours to get back to someone, and I was apologizing for taking so long to get back to them. And when you do that, when you apologize for trivial things, it makes you come across as weak. Um, so it was something. So I actually downloaded a Gmail plugin called Just Not Sorry that would alert me every time I used the word. And I really made an effort to go back and reread emails. The other thing that I did was 
I realized that most of the time my intention was really to say thank you. It wasn't about apologizing. So I started replacing I'm sorry with thank you. And there's so much more power Mm -hmm. in that. Um, And it's just there's better energy around those words. Absolutely. Right? Like even if I'm going to say no, instead of saying I'm sorry I can't attend the event, I start with thank you. You know, thank you for inviting me. But I can't attend the event. But I can't attend the event. Right? Or if an inv- if a founder would like for me to look at their their business um, and they ask for a meeting and it's not in my sweet spot, you know, I'll say th- thank you for bringing me the opportunity. That's not in my sweet spot. Um, but you know, maybe I'll take like a fifteen minute phone call with them instead of spending two hours that it would take to read the deck to have the meeting. Like, I might do a 15-minute call or I might introduce them to a, to an investor who does invest in that space. So that's the other thing. Like I feel like there are low-lift ways that you can be helpful. So sometimes it's not just about like saying no. It's more like I can't do that, but I will do this kind of thing. You get into a lot revolving around money and salary. And we talk about that a lot on this show. But I'm interested to hear your take as far mm-hmm. as what – we can do to improve our chances of getting paid what we're worth. Yeah. So one of the pieces of advice that I'll share, because I feel like it's a fresh piece of advice, is that women tend to negotiate more effectively when they're negotiating on behalf of someone else. So if you were negotiating for your best friend, Mm -hmm. you would be able to objectively look at all of the ways that she adds value. And you love her so much that you're really going to go to bat for her and you're going to give it your best shot. And what I say is, like, channel that towards yourself. You know, be really objective. Look at the ways that you've added value to the company and love yourself. Like, care about yourself enough that you're going to give it your best shot. You know, don't go into it with this, like, wishy-washy, you know, soft kind of language. Like, really go for it. Yeah, I think that can make all the difference because we really, really love our best friends. We do, and we'll do anything for them. Yeah. Right? And we see them. We can see them in a really objective, unbiased way. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, there's there's a lot of advice in the book around, like, you know, knowing your value. And I always say, like, make recruiters your best friends mm-hmm. because they they know what your market rate is because they're filling these positions. Well, and they know where the jobs are. So they, they know where the heat in the market is, right? Like, Take them out for coffee every once in a while. You know, they love to network. Nobody takes them out for coffee. Nobody takes them out for coffee. That is such a good idea. It's take them out for coffee. Like literally, I would say like two or three times a year. I still do that. Build relationships with them because going into a negotiation, knowing what your market rate is will give you so much confidence and you're more likely to get a positive outcome because you're basing it in in data. Yeah. Last question or series of questions because I always have more than one, but... Your your life now as an investor, as a startup advisor, what do you see that makes you want to take a bet on particular women? Mm. So there's a few things. I love investing in women that are coachable. Um, so like I really pay attention to if I share a piece of advice, how do they process it? Are they dismissive of it? Do they listen? Do they ask questions? Are they curious? Or do they come across as like, I've got it all figured out? And that that's an issue to me. Yeah. Um, I look at things like integrity, 
and kindness. And it's hard to get at that by spending time, a short amount of time with someone. So that is actually where I'll do a lot of back channeling. Like I use LinkedIn to, you know, look for mutual connections. Mm -hmm. and, um, And I will ask people, like, tell me about how she operated. Like, you know, you were on this team with her. Like, I understand what the outcome was. Like, there could have been a great outcome, like a product launch or whatever it was. But I want to understand the how. Like, how does she play the game? You know, and I think that says a lot about a person. When you're investing in a startup, you know, the typical startup, it takes five to seven years for the company to either exit or to dissolve. So it's a long-term relationship. And I really want Like, I invest in women that I feel like I want to spend time with this person. I really find her interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm actually enjoying this conversation because it's a relationship, and you're going to be spending a lot of time together. Fascinating. Fran Hauser, the book is The Myth of the Nice Girl. I feel like I could talk to you all day, so I hope you'll come back. I will. Thank you, Jean. I loved it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and we'll be right back. Kelly Hultgren, our producer and millennial and <laughs> no you know why I'm saying this I went to lunch yesterday yes. with Jill Herzig who mm-hmm. will come up she she's going to be on the podcast in the near future she is the former editor of Dr Oz Good Life magazine and she is soon to debut a new podcast that she is co-hosting with Lisa Oz, who is wonderful. So they're both going to come on the show, which is great. I'm really excited about that. But she's been listening to our show. She's a recent listener. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And she said, who's Kelly? And I, and I I said, oh, my God, I just assume everybody knows Kelly. Knows, yeah. So I, so I was making an effort to explain that you produce the show. Oh, thank to you. To say your last name, not to just say Kelly, Kelly. And to say Kelly is our resident millennial, which yes. I think is really is, is great, which is not how we need to define you forever because, you know, but it, it just. I am totally fine with that. And okay. it's true. And in line with that, we received an email recently. And I love it. And I'm spinning the words because I think it's more funny this way. But she was basically like, it's so great to have Kelly on the show. She's a good reminder that not everyone has it right yet. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't use those words verbatim, but that was the essence of it. And I was like, so happy to be the example, the good, the bad, whatever. Like, that's why I'm here. (laughs) I don't have it right all the time either, by the way. I I have, you know, I have learned a lot because I have been doing this a long time, but I don't always have it right. And that was such a great conversation. I I really wanted to have her on the show. We'll actually be continuing the conversation about the book, about our interview, and our very first Facebook Live today in our new Facebook group. Which is so exciting. Mm -hmm. So we announced that we were going to be launching this Facebook group. A lot of you sent us emails to say you wanted in. You don't have to do that anymore because now we are live and you can just go to the Facebook group and you can tell us right there and we can go through the process of admitting you. Mm -hmm. But it's a private Facebook group. It is a judgment-free zone. We're going to be having Facebook Lives in that group. We're going to be having Q&A sessions. It's just, it's a place where we can get to know you a little bit better, which I'm excited about. I'm so happy about it. Yeah. So we have our first one today, this afternoon, 
head to our Facebook page to find out more information and to opt in the group if you're listening to the show this morning and you can make it in time for people listening to this episode after air date. No worries. We're going to be having content every week moving forward, and you'll be able to interact with us more every week moving forward. Now you know. Now you know. Okay, so we'll get to some questions. We'll first do one from Susan. I've heard you discuss the Roth and freezing credit extensively. My 16-year-old daughter is a camp counselor and makes about $900 each summer. I wanted to put in a Roth IRA, but wasn't sure if it made sense once you start paying any kind of fees, annual or otherwise, associated with the account. I know Jean had mentioned to put it in a stock index fund and let it ride. Secondly, when she opened her bank account, the banker told me to check her credit as he thought he saw something on there. Should I be freezing her credit before she even has a credit card? Is that even possible? So can I take it one at a time? Please. Okay. So (laughs) as far as the Roth IRA, there are not a lot of fees associated with some of these accounts. You have to shop around. Just look for a low-cost one. Um, I think it's a great idea. You know, your daughter, if she's anything like my daughter, is not going to want to give up her $900 that she earned as a camp counselor. You may have to kick in some money for her so that she has something to spend, which I think, by the way, she should have something to spend because this is why we work and we want to get the pleasure out of it, too. So she should have some autonomy with some of that money. But yeah, I wouldn't really worry about the fees. I would look for a a low-cost provider, put it in. And essentially what I was saying with the index fund is you just want it in a very broad, diversified portfolio. It can be an S&P 500 fund. It can be a total stock market index fund. It can be an exchange-traded fund that's very broad. We want broad and we want low fee. And that is all you need to do. And then you keep contributing and you don't worry so much about the ups and downs because there will be ups and downs. But she's got so many years that time is really on her side. The answer to the second question is pull your daughter's credit report. When he said he saw something, your daughter should not have a credit report. And if she does have a credit report, that is sign that there's been credit activity under her name and social security number. That is bad. So at that point, yes, you freeze her credit. You may want to go ahead and just freeze it preemptively. It's a fine thing to do. Since she's not applying for anything, it's not going to hurt to freeze her credit. And since it's now free or soon will be free, the government has given us that little bonus. They've passed a law that allows free credit freezes coming down the pike in the fall. It won't cost you anything. If you find that there has been activity, you want to go directly to the credit bureaus and you want to file fraud reports to shut that down. That's so scary. How It, it how, happens all the time. Does the remediation happen quickly? The credit bureaus have to get back to you within 30 days, but it can take longer to unwind depending on what it is. Oh, good luck. Okay, we'll do one from Nicole. My question is about umbrella life insurance policies. For the past year, my insurance agent has been trying to sell me one of those policies because she says we really need it. I'm married with two kids, own a home, and have a rental property. We already have the typical insurances, auto, home, rental, medical, disability, and life. In what types of situations do you think an umbrella life insurance policy makes sense? In situations like yours. Uh, Yeah. So I actually saw this question come in, and I was talking with my insurer this morning and asked him If there's a dollar limit, if you need to have amassed a certain 
dollar figure in assets before an umbrella liability policy makes sense. And just for people who haven't heard of this, this is a second liability policy. It sits on top of both your homeowners and your auto insurance policy. And should you get into a car accident and somebody come after you for everything you're worth, this policy would kick in Mm. um, and provide a layer of protection. And it's pretty cheap, about $250 for a million dollars in coverage. The rating does depend on your driving record. So if you're a really bad driver, and I'm sure you're not, then it would be more expensive. But if you get a decent rate on auto insurance, you should get a decent rate on this. Typically, anybody who has significant assets or who has a future where it looks like they will have significant assets that could be sought in some sort of a litigious situation should buy a policy like this. What does litigious mean? Litigious means you work for a tech company and maybe you've got some stock options Uh. or somebody sees there's value in that. You just got a medical degree and somebody thinks, oh, you're going to make a lot of money down the road. Maybe I'll sue for future earnings. That's a or, word. Yes. I think liability insurance is a cheap form of really good protection mm. in a lot of cases. Not enough people have it. Not enough people think about it. My insurance agent said he thinks anybody who has a car, who owns a car, should have an umbrella policy. That's the first time I've heard that. But Look, I get it. People sue people for absolutely no reason these days. One more from Jessica. Hi, Jean and Kelly. My question is for my younger sister that I'm trying to advise and could really use your help to fill in the gaps in my big sister knowledge base. My sister had a full-time job with a 401k, which she made contributions to for three years. She left that job to start a master's program and will graduate several years from now. She had to cash out her 401k, and that several thousand dollars is now just sitting in a bank account. Her current part-time job does not come with retirement benefits. Which kind of account or accounts should she invest in while in school? I don't want her to miss out on several years of compound interest. Would it be better if she invests in a non-retirement specific account, like a basic mix of mutual funds, or should she open up her own, like an IRA? Would she be able to roll that into a company retirement account once she has a full-time job? Okay, let's start with just dispelling the fallacy in this question. She didn't have to cash out that 401k. A lot of people believe that you have to. Some people do it by accident. But when you leave a job, if you've got money in a 401k, you have a choice of often leaving it in your former employer's plan or rolling it into an IRA. She could have just rolled it into an IRA where it would continue to grow and then there would be no taxes owed on taking the money out of the 401k. When you withdraw from a 401k, it's really expensive. You have to pay taxes on that money and there's a 10% penalty. So it can eat up 30% of the money really easily and it should be avoided. And I say this as somebody who did it and has regretted it for a couple of decades. So that's number one. As far as where to put it, it depends what the money is for. If this is money for the long term, if it's retirement money, then I would open an IRA or a Roth IRA. I would put the money in there. You can contribute up to $5,500 a year, and I would invest it in a diversified mix of stocks and probably a few bonds because she's fairly young. But just, you know, most of it 
in stocks, maybe 80% with 20% in, in bonds or a target date retirement fund or something that is very diversified, very simple, very low cost. When she gets a full-time job that does have retirement benefits, she won't be able to roll the money into that retirement plan. You can roll from a retirement plan into an IRA, but you can't do the reverse. But it doesn't matter. She will be able to just keep them both going um, on parallel tracks. Nice. Okay. Thank you, Jane. And thank you, Jessica, and to everyone else who sends in their questions. Thanks, guys. In Thrive Today, we are talking about price protection on credit cards. This is the benefit where your card issuer refunds you the price differential if something you purchased with your card decreases within a certain amount of time. Chase recently removed this benefit from its United and Chase Sapphire cards. Um, You didn't get a call about it or a text or an email that the perk was getting removed. The company just did it according to the Points Guy and the Points Guy blogs about this stuff. And Chase isn't the only one. Last month, Citi also revealed that it would cap refunds from its price protection feature at $1,000 a year and $200 per claim starting at the end of July. It's a big drop. It's down from 2,500 annually and 500 per claim. And these are pretty interesting moves considering 52% of credit cards now offer these benefits of price protection that lasts up to about 90 or 120 days. This is according to research by Ernie. Customers really value these benefits. 73% say they'd apply for a credit card if they knew that they'd get this price protection. It's likely that Chase was banking instead and Citi was banking instead on the 43% of people who don't know that their card has these benefits. This is just a wake up. Knowing the benefits that you are toting around in your wallet is worth your time. Many credit cards come with extended warranty protection, free FICO scores, rental car insurance, trip cancellation coverage. So be aware of what you have and how these benefits work. And you can often save hundreds of dollars on things that you don't have to buy elsewhere or money that you can get back if the price drops. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Fran Hauser for a wonderful conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we like hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with matchmaker Meredith Golden, and we'll talk soon. 